Looking at Romans chapter 8, as we have been this term, thinking about the shape and substance of our hope. And if you can have that passage in front of you, I'm sure it'd be a real blessing. If you've got a paper Bible, they really are excellent. I recommend them even more than the phone. Uh, Let's pray as we get going. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are present with us tonight by your Spirit. And as we've worshipped you and praised you and, and longed to know your presence, we thank you that now, as we come to your word, we have the privilege of hearing you speak. Still our hearts by your spirit. Work in each one of us. Give us softness in our hearts to hear from you and to be changed by what we hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes in life, you find yourself in the middle of doing something and you ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep going? And if the answer isn't yes, then you're probably going to stop doing that thing, aren't you? Why would you keep going with it if it's not really worth it? Why not just cut your losses and move on? And that sort of is it worth it exchange happens to me most often during exercise of any kind. (laughs) The sweating begins, the muscles begin to ache, the breathing becomes labored. And when I hit that point, usually halfway through the warm-up, I ask myself, is it worth it? And from deep in my very being, the answer comes back, no. And so I just stop. I recommend it. Now, actually, trivially, you might end up asking, is it worth it? But actually, you might also end up asking it at the most serious, deep level of life. You might be going through such a hard thing that you find yourself asking, is it worth it? And you might ask yourself that question spiritually. Is it worth it to keep on following Jesus? Is it worth it when following him will cost? So far in Romans 8, Paul has given us some amazing heights to look at. No condemnation from God. Life in his Holy Spirit. Resurrection guaranteed. Adoption as as God's children. But here in verse 17, he underlines for us that suffering is also part of that passage. Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If you're an heir, that means you share. Yes, you will share in that glory, but you'll also share in how Jesus received that glory. You'll share in the suffering that took him there. Now, I want to be clear. You won't share everything about Jesus' suffering. Thank God. There are some aspects of his suffering that we will never experience. The condemnation for sin. The reason why there isn't any of that for us is that he took it all himself in his death. We don't taste that or experience it at all. And yet, at the same time, Jesus calls us to follow him and tells us to take up our cross, because his suffering sets up a pattern for us to live by. Glory through suffering, the cross and then the crown. That's what we're called to follow. That's how he brings us to glory. We suffer with him to share his glory. So is it worth it? That suffering of going Jesus's way and not the way of the world with all the pressure and hostility that could bring you. Is it worth it to say no to yourself when it comes to things you want so that you can say yes to Jesus and obey him? 
Is it worth it with all that suffering that you can't explain, that feels so hard to accept? Is it worth it? Here's the thing we're going to see from this evening. If the glory doesn't grab you, then the suffering will always seem too much. If the glory that we share in Jesus doesn't grab you, then you always say, no, no, this isn't worth it. And so what Paul's going to help us do is unpack what SJ had us do when we all shouted glory earlier. He wants us this evening, as we look at these verses, to see just how overwhelmingly good the glory we share with Jesus really is. That's what we're going to see from these verses tonight. So here's my first headline. This glory is worth the suffering because it's what all creation longs to see. This glory is worth the suffering because it's what all creation longs to see. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, in my NIV Bible, it has a heading, present suffering and future glory. But actually, if you look at that verse, the glory itself isn't future. It's not that this glory still needs to be achieved, still needs to be accomplished. It's a reality now in Jesus. And if we belong to him through the Holy Spirit, then we already enjoy that adopted status that is going to be so glorious. What is in the future is that glory being revealed. It's like a beautiful painting, which is nearly on display at the gallery, hung up already. It already exists, but it's covered up for now. It's it's not yet publicly unveiled. That stunning painting, it already exists, but it won't be enjoyed until it's revealed. And that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about this glory. It it already exists. It's ours in Jesus, but we're waiting for it to be revealed when he returns. And when he does, Paul says, we will realize that All of our sufferings now pale into comparison. None of them are worth comparing with that glory. Now, it might be that you hear me say that and you think to yourself, that is hard to believe. It might be that tonight you are really struggling, going through something so hard, and you say, can it really be that what I'm experiencing now isn't worth comparing with the glory to come? So it might be hard to hear these verses if you're suffering. And that's because pretty much everything is hard to hear when you're suffering because pretty much everything is hard when you're suffering. And as you experience suffering, that feels like the biggest thing you could possibly be going through. And yet we need to hear what Paul is saying in these verses, because in them he's helping us by giving us a a bigger framework to put our suffering into as we experience it. Because when you're going through suffering, that is almost impossible to do. It doesn't feel like anything could be bigger than the pain that you feel at that moment. But Paul's helping us see that if we're trusting in Jesus, glory gets the last word, not suffering. The same way that Jesus rose again from the dead, swallowing up death forever, so too the glory we share with him will swallow up all the suffering forever. That's why it won't be worth comparing. Earlier this week, I got a lovely card from a friend, which would make me laugh a lot. I think that the image will come up on the screen. And it's a caterpillar saying to a butterfly, or maybe a butterfly saying to a caterpillar, you don't, you don't think it's too much? Um, I, I found that really funny. But the reason why I share it is that from our perspective now, it's caterpillar life. 
and the sufferings feel interminable, and they feel as big as it could possibly be, and it almost feels unimaginable that one day there might be a butterfly reality for us. But that is the glory that is to come, and it will be so wonderful that it will utterly transform everything. The difference will be even bigger than the difference between a, a caterpillar crawling along to a butterfly that has color and flight and beauty. That is what we're promised. So why? Why is this glory worth the suffering? Is it because the glory will outweigh the suffering? That's definitely true. And it's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. But here, he's actually saying something different. Here, he's saying that this suffering is worth, sorry, this glory is worth the suffering because creation is longing to see it. In other words, this glory is so all-encompassing, so all-transforming that even creation longs for it. Verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Eager expectation. The word Paul uses there has the meaning of craning your neck towards something. Paul says that all creation, living things, inanimate things, is longing for this glory to be revealed. Every bit of it. That's how good this glory is. All creation is desperate for it, longing for it. Now, that's a powerful metaphor that Paul is using. And when we read metaphors like this in Scripture, God gives them to us so that they can grip our imaginations and work their way into our hearts. So I wonder if I can invite you to let this metaphor grip your imagination. Even this week, can you look around at reality, understanding that there is a glory to be revealed so good that all creation is longing to see it? So that this is what all dogs are really drooling for. This is what all lions are really roaring for. This is what all migratory birds are soaring for to find each year. This is what every oak tree is reaching up to the heavens to grab. This is what every star is shining for, every planet spinning for, every wave crashing for. It's all for this. Everything longing for this. Why? Why? What are we talking about when we talk about this glory? We're talking about our glory as God's adopted children. Why is that the glory that all creation is longing for? Well, here's my second headline for tonight. Because when our glory as God's children is revealed, creation will be set free at last. When our glory as God's children is revealed, creation will be set free at last. Have a look at verse 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Those verses tell us that we are not the only ones who know what it's like to be enslaved. If you were here last week, you would see that we have received the spirit of adoption to sonship who sets us free from slavery to fear. That's in verse 15 slavery to fear. And that same word for slavery is in our passage tonight, in verse 21, that bondage to decay. Creation knows what it's like to be a slave, enslaved to frustration, to that wearying sense of pointlessness going nowhere. 
a bondage to decay and all of the pointless destruction that seems to make no sense to us. Creation is enslaved to that. Why? Well, it didn't choose that willingly. You know, obviously, who would? But because of the will of another, God's will, Paul says. God's the one who subjected it to frustration, to that futility. The word for frustration there you might know from Ecclesiastes, that vanity, that vapor-like emptiness. God did that. Now, why would he do a thing like that? Well, to understand what Paul's talking about, we have to go back to Genesis, which is in the back of his mind as he writes these words, and think about how God made everything. He made a good, beautiful creation, and he gave us, humanity, a unique role and responsibility in the world. Like no other creature, he made us in his image, to image him as we rule over creation under him, as we steward it and care for it. God gave us that amazing responsibility so that our conduct can either steward creation or devastate it. And as we read on in Genesis to chapter 3, we see that that is what happens. Humanity's rebellion against God, our sin, has an impact on everything else. It puts reality out of joint. It's a bit like a conductor who's been entrusted with a premiere piece for orchestra that the composer has given him, trusted him to, to perform. And on the night of the premiere, the composer in audience, everyone gets ready for the performance, and the conductor gets up and begins deliberately, willfully, to conduct terribly, to misconduct everything, not bringing people in at the right time, not letting the orchestra tune up, not letting all of the parts play together. And you can imagine the orchestra are so frustrated because they're playing the parts they've been given. They're trying their best, but because of the conductor, the composer's music is not being heard. It's not even being played. And the composer is being defiled. And the beauty of the music he pr produced is, is not being made a reality. And the orchestra hates it. Well, that's a little bit like what's happening in our passage. Creation is so frustrated. It's longing to be set free from terrible conductors. Longing for us to play our part in reality and live in the image of God so that it can play its part and the beautiful harmony and intricacy of the music of our God can finally be heard. That's the frustration of creation. It's longing for the day when the conductor isn't rebelling against the composer. Now, that's just an analogy. You wouldn't want to push it too far, but God has given us that kind of responsibility in the universe. And that is what creation is longing for, the freedom again for that beautiful harmony to be heard. Now, here's the thing, though. It's not that God was lashing out when he subjected creation to frustration. This wasn't him losing his rag and just lashing out. Instead, we see he subjected creation to frustration in hope. It's what we see at the end of verse 21. He did it in hope, in view of a plan he had to restore everything. In hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. God planned that one day humanity would be restored in full. And when that happened, creation itself would be restored in full. 
And that has already begun to happen in Jesus. He has come, the true Son of God by nature, to make us sons and daughters of God by grace through adoption. He is the image of God, come to renew God's image in us. And through his death on the cross, he took the condemnation that humanity deserved. And in his resurrection began a new humanity made up of those who suffer with him to receive glory with him. He has already come to make that reality. And creation is now just waiting for his return when we are caught up with him, when we, his people, are brought into the fullness of what it is to be children of God. I don't know if you suffer from early Christmas soundtracks in the shops. Do you struggle that now it's November and it's Mariah Carey all the time whenever you go anywhere? So I apologise in advance for what I'm about to do, not sing Mariah Carey, but rather quote a Christmas carol, because there's a lovely verse from Joy to the World, Isaac Watts, local Southampton boy, which captures what has happened for our world in Jesus, what has begun to happen in the renewed humanity that is his. The verse goes, no more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. It's a reference to Genesis 3 with the thorns that come up with the curse on creation. No more let sins or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That is what Jesus has come to do. And the glory that we will share with him is one that, as I say, doesn't need to be achieved, doesn't need to be accomplished. It's already been achieved and all creation is waiting for it to be revealed. That is the stunning painting covered for now. And when it is unveiled, everyone in the gallery will gasp. Everything in the universe will be transformed. We will be everything we were made to be and so will creation. And on that day when he returns, verse 21 will happen. Creation itself will be set free, will participate in the freedom and glory of the children of God, us sharing God's status. And on that day, to borrow from the Lord of the Rings, everything sad will come untrue. That is our hope when Jesus returns. So tonight, as we reflect on these words, before we move on from this passage, because we're halfway through Paul's argument and he'll pick it up again next week, let me ask you this question. Do you think we really get how big our salvation is in Jesus? Do you think we are grabbed by the glory of what we are going to share with him? See, it's not just a Jesus and me thing, our salvation, although wonderfully we are saved as individuals. It's not even a Jesus and us thing, although wonderfully we are part of a community now we've been saved. It's a Jesus and everything thing. This is encompassing the cosmos. This will transform everything. What God has done in Jesus will have an impact on the farthest reaches of the universe. Try it sometime. Go out on a starry night, look at the farthest, dimmest star you can see. Then imagine the farthest star you can't see from where we are. Understand that all of it is caught up in what God is doing in Jesus. All of it will be made new in him. So the invitation tonight the thing to pray about is that God, through his Holy Spirit, would bring home to each one of us how big our salvation is in Jesus. The prayer tonight is that by his Holy Spirit, God 
would show us this glory that we share with him and that that glory would grab us. Because if it does, we will be able to share in Jesus' sufferings. We'll suffer with him and we won't give up. It won't even derail us. We'll realize that we're just experiencing the prelude to this glory and our longing for it will be all the more intense. We'll realize that this caterpillar life is not forever and that that butterfly reality is on its way in him. We'll be able to suffer with him and keep going. But secondly, we'll also understand our place in creation. If we let the glory we share in Jesus grab us, we will finally understand our relationship to the environment and our responsibility for the world. So we're going to finish by thinking a little bit about that. Perhaps this week you've been seeing the coverage of COP26. I've been able to see little else actually on the news. And it seems like a bit of a now or never moment. Is it too late for things to change? And obviously, that's a huge question. There are so many things for us to reflect on and think about, not least change practically in how we live. At Highfield, we're, we're putting together a group, a sort of working group to get us really practical on what we as a church can do with our building and other things on that. And I'm sure for each one of us personally, there are things that we need to think about in how we live and what that means for the environment. But before I get really practical on any of that, don't really think I have time for it, not really sure I'm an expert at any of it, I do want us to look at how these verses help us understand our place in creation, and particularly three things that I think they show us. First, I think these verses show us our part in the problem. I remember once being at a Christian event where a skeptic challenged the, seat, the speaker and said, surely this Genesis stuff gives human beings way too much prominence in the universe. Are we just too small to count like that? And it's true that Professor Stephen Hawking says that we're, we're just a chemical scum, actually, in the grand scheme of things. But at the same time, the climate crisis shows us compellingly that we appear to be the chemical scum that can destroy everything. We appear to have that kind of disproportionate impact on our world around us. How do we make sense of that? Well, scripture has always made sense of it because scripture from the beginning has told us that we exist with this kind of conductor-like responsibility and our behavior, our attitudes really can damage everything. These verses show us our part in the problem. Second, I think these verses show us that a superficial solution won't do. The only thing that will set creation free is the revelation of the glory of the freedom of the children of God, verse 21. And so, yes, we should pray for big commitments from COP26 and pray that they are kept. But at the same time, we need to realize that more than diplomacy is needed to put our world right. Because the truth is, the climate crisis is beyond any one of us to change. Um, you might have heard this quote before. It's from James Speth, who's an environmental lawyer, coming up on the screen. And he said this, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. And let's not be too hard on scientists. None of us do. No human being can do that. 
That's the problem with selfishness, greed, and apathy. Ever since the fall, it's like they've been wired in. The only hope for a lasting solution cannot be a superficial one. It has to be one that gets into our hearts and starts changing us at that level. And that's why we, if we're Christians, need to share the good news of Jesus into the fear and dread and anxiety around climate change today. We need to share that with people because it is the only hope. Only God, through the gospel, gets to work at that heart level and starts turning back our selfishness, greed, and apathy. But more to the point, it actually helps people understand why they care. We need to pray for the wisdom to join the dots between the good news of Jesus and the longings of those who want to care for creation. We need to tell the world, particularly so many young people who care so passionately about this, we need to tell the world that their intuition that creation is valuable, worth preserving, is telling them the truth about reality. It is worth preserving because it was made with purpose and intent by a wonderful creator. We need to tell people that, of course, the universe isn't time and matter and chance, because if you really believe that, why care about preserving anything? We need to show them how their intuition to care for everything is telling them the truth about God, if only they'd recognize it. We need to show them that their intuition, that how we act in this world really does matter, how we treat this world and others in it really does matter. We need to help them see that that intuition is also telling them the truth about how we were made, with that amazing impact on everything, either to steward it for good or put it out of joint forever. So I think these verses show us a superficial solution won't do. We need to cry out to God, and we ourselves need to proclaim Jesus to people so lacking in hope on these things. Finally, I think these verses show us a hope that is worth working towards. See, as Christians, when we take our responsibility to creation seriously, we're doing it because we know what God plans for everything. We know where the future is headed. Verse 21, for the revelation of the the glory of the freedom of the children of God. That's what's coming, the day when all creation is finally set free. And because we know that, we have better reasons than anyone else to care for creation and to strive towards where God is steering everything. Because we care about him. We want what he says about reality to shape how we live in it. He values creation, so do we. He's planning to liberate it, so we live in line with that. Let me give you a a little partial analogy. Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights leader, uh, he once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He was a Christian, passionate Christian, and he knew where God was steering reality. So he knew that to fight for equality between different races in 1960s America, as hard as it was, cost him his life though it did, was the right thing to do, because that's where history was headed. You see, if this is true, what we're seeing this evening, then the reason why we should act to care for our climate is not because it's the final desperate throw of the dice before everything goes wrong. That would be utterly hopeless. The dread would be overwhelming, and I think it already is overwhelming many people. No, the truth is God has a plan for this creation. He will transform it. He will liberate it. And because of that, we find the energy to strive towards that. Christian hope never displaces human effort. It establishes the validity of human effort. 
And because we know where the future is headed, we find the energy and the joy and the hope to press on towards that. Only in the gospel do we find the hope that is worth working towards. So caring for the climate, that's not something we should do to be fashionable or relevant. For some of us, that ship sailed long ago. The reason why we should care for creation is because it's faithfulness to scripture, faithfulness to Jesus, and the world he is going to bring in when he returns again. And we know that because in Jesus, we have already been adopted as sons and daughters of God. And we know that that new humanity is ready to be revealed. And when it is, and the orchestra finally strikes up, in tune, properly conducted, and the glorious music of the great composer is finally heard, we know that we will be part of something more beautiful, more wonderful than we can even imagine, more glorious than anything we can conceive of now. So yes, it's worth it. It's worth it to keep going with Jesus. It's worth it to suffer with him. It's worth it to wait for this. It's worth it to work towards this. It's worth it. Let me pray now for us that that glory would grab us and that God would work through our imaginations to grip our hearts to live for him. Thank you.